everybody. Welcome to another Whiskey, Web, and Whatnot with myself, Robbie Wagner, and my co-host, as always, Charles William Carpenter III. Our guest today, Matt Johnson. Do you prefer Matt or, or Matthew? Matt is great. My mother calls me Matthew, though. Okay. Mm, so You're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for joining us. Maybe if you want to give a, a quick intro and uh, who you are and what you do. Yeah, my name is Matt Johnson. I've started multiple businesses. The biggest one is Midwestern Interactive. Founded it in 2012, coming up on 10 years. Pretty excited about it. Got a great team and love what we do. So Nice, nice. And what you do is technology, but we'll get more into that later. <laughs> yeah, I guess some of the other businesses I own um, <laughs> is a coffee shop, CrossFit Gyms. And then, not that I do a lot of CrossFit, but I'm a partner in some CrossFit gyms. <laughs> we don't publish the video. You can tell people otherwise. <laughs> oh, really? Perfect. I'm ripped. Well, there will be a video snippet. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it. I'm caught. <laughs> oh, no. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, I think that's another touch point we can discuss later. Mm-hmm. Not just being a tech person. Being a business person. Yeah. 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 Chuck gets mad whenever we don't start with whiskey, so we'll... Uh, We'll go ahead and talk about the whiskey. Yeah. Okay. I just, I get so nervous and I need the liquid courage. So you know how it goes. (laughs) So this week we're having Weller Antique 107. I'm kind of excited about this one. So I've actually, it wouldn't be the first time I'm trying it. I used to have it a lot back in the day before people discovered whiskey was tasty and it was like $25. Now it uh, far exceeds that price and availability. So when you get an opportunity to kind of come back to an old favorite, hopefully I still like it. Produced by Buffalo Trace, 107 proof, as the name implies. I can't remember how many years it was aged, but what's the mash bill? I put it in there. Robert? It is speculated to be 70% corn, 16% wheat, and 14% malted barley. I guess they don't tell you exactly. Yeah, it's secret sauce, but it's weeded. So it's actually supposed to be like kind of close to Pappy and comes out of similar production lines. Have you ever had it, Matt? I've never had 107. I have had Pappy. Mm. And so let's taste it. I actually had a Pappy last week. Mm. Want to hear more about that in a second. Mm-hmm. Still smells as good as I remember. Got kind of a little citrus, little oh, maple syrup. Hopefully it doesn't taste like maple. Mm. I'm making it up. Don't worry. It's got some spice at the end. Yeah. I think it has a little bit of, this is going to be a really weird descriptor, and I don't mean this in a bad way, let me say that, but it <laughs> smells a little bit like like a shoe store, like that rubbery, like I love that smell personally, but. Mm. Okay. So not the feet smell. No, no, no. Like, like new <laughs> shoes, unworn <laughs> shoes. Used shoes. <laughs> All right, perfect. <laughs> I can kind of smell that a little bit. Yeah, it's just fresh, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hmm. Like fresh rubber kind of thing or something more like the soles or just yeah i guess rubber i don't know i guess there's leather on some shoes depending what you want to buy yeah it's like new car smell there's like a lot that goes into it you can't just say yeah that one specific thing so yeah chemists break that down and get it right for everyone to agree you know what this does taste very similar to pappy i'm not gonna say it is pappy but it is very similar which pappy did you have gosh i got it at a uh restaurant in San Francisco. It's called House of Prime. Mm-hmm. I know it. Dude, it's so good. And I didn't take note of which Pappy it was. I just noticed they had a Pappy up on the top shelf, and I just asked for a pour of it. Huh, there you go. It's like not harsh on the front, but then has that 
has the bones on the back end, which is really, really nice. And this is very similar to that. I like that bones on wait, I'm not going to repeat it. Forget it. <laughs> it was entertaining though. Uh, yeah. House of prime. It's like a prime rib place. And it seems like some old hunting lodge kind of boys club sort of thing. Kind of like 1787 co-working. Except most of the people that work here are women. So <laughs> we're inclusive. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the boys club is kind of an old ideology. I agree with you though. I get kind of like a little sweet, little sour in the beginning. And then you get a little punch in the neck on the way down, which is what I want for my whiskeys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're ever going to go to house of prime, little pro tip is go to the bar you can get full service at the bar so you don't have to get reservations or any of that stuff. So you can get right in because there's usually a pretty big line out the door. Yeah, that's a good one. So talk about the rating system. Mm-hmm. We have a very official, very specific rating system. One to eight tentacles so that it can be on brand. And uh, one being terrible, I would never have this again. Eight being amazing. This is like something I will buy every time I see it. And then there's obviously all these random in-betweens like, oh, good, but not great or whatever. And I, I jest when I say very specific and and serious. But uh, I don't know. We like to just like think about things you've had before and how you might rate this in comparison to that. You want me to go first? You don't have to. Do you want one of us to go first and then? <laughs> I'm fine going first. All right. Set the standard. <laughs> I didn't want to skip the line. Yeah. You know, if, if you guys had a normal thing that you normally do. But nope. I think this bourbon for me is probably a five only because it's not one that I would just like. I'd have to be in the right mood for it. You know, it's not like a quote unquote session bourbon or a bourbon I can just enjoy multiple pours of across the night. But it would be something I would like after a meal. You know, just to kind of cleanse the palate and burn the bacteria down, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I dig that. What about you, Robbie? Yeah. So I think for me, you know, as we've established in many episodes, not a huge bourbon fan, prefer rise. But I think in terms of bourbons, this is extremely good. So I would give it, I think, a seven. Interesting. I've primarily have been a bourbon first person, but uh, Robbie has brought me down the trail <laughs> of rise. I would say just in general, for me, it's probably around a six. For bourbons on their own, I agree with you, Matt. It kind of depends on what I'm in the mood for, because like you can compare it to like a wild turkey bourbon, and it's going to have a lot more spice. This has a bit more sweet being weeded. I guess your biggest comparisons in weeded bourbons that people know of are like Maker's Mark or you got your Pappy on the other side of things. So I would say it's better than Maker's for me. Maybe the fact that it's not as available as a Maker's makes it a little better in that sense for me. On the other hand, it was really awesome at like $25, $30. Now at 100 to 150 when you find it or something, it's probably punching way above its weight in that sense. Yeah. I like it when I can get it. I'm not going to seek it all the time. I'm going to agree with you five. Also, because it's not that serious. <laughs> yeah, I kind of forgot about it being that expensive. I might drop it down one for that because, yeah, it's not really worth that price, I would say. Yeah, when you can get a Buffalo Trace or a Maker's all over the place, decent price, you know, not much off from this, then I'll be like, eh, I'm good with that. Maybe it's like I'm out at a nice steakhouse and it's there and I can order a nice palate cleanser or a friend has it and you can have a dram. Cool. Yeah, I'm into it. I'll have that. Invite a friend to your podcast, 
Also that, also a good time to do it. <laughs> you know, those kinds of circumstances. I got a question. Yeah. What's been one of your highest rated that you guys have done on the show? I think it was the old Forrester Prohibition style was pretty high. Oh, the 1920? Yeah, I think we agreed pretty high on that one. And you can get that one at like Total Wines and stuff fairly regularly. About 60 bucks. <laughs> and uh, it's got some meat on the bones, I think. Cool. Check it out. Yeah. All right. So I thought we might talk real life stuff. And I think the first question was yours, Rob. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just put a bunch of general questions together and uh, Chuck and I were talking a little bit and we thought it would kind of be cool to go through, you know, how you got into coding and kind of your journey to starting an agency and all that. So let's start with like you personally, you know, how did you get into coding and what started you on that path? Yeah. So it's actually kind of funny. I was just talking about this the other day, but when I was in high school or coming into high school, my brother, he's always been about three years older than me. He would get into things and then I would kind of follow in his footsteps. Right. You know, as a true younger brother mm -hmm. would, my brother got into music, into bands, and then I wanted to start a band. So I started a band and then I traveled and toured and did that whole thing. He transitioned into technology, computer programming, I was still traveling in the band. We kind of got up to about 190 days on tour a year. And wow. in the midst of that progression, getting up to that place, I was going to college as well for business administration and was kind of really running, you know, the tour booking and the management side of things for the band. I was a bass player, so not really in the limelight, but doing a bunch of stuff behind the scenes. And at one point we needed a website and knowing my brother had done computer programming and he was doing software engineering. I was like, you know what? I can figure this out. If he can do it, I can do it. Right. <laughs> so, um, did the best job I could at the time. I remember, you know, I just did it in vanilla PHP and HTML and CSS and connected to the database and ugly fashion. There was no, you know, ORM or anything like that to help out with those types of things with queries and created my own CRUD pattern and basically content management system, uh, custom, and built a website for us and fell in love. So I basically immediately changed my major from business administration to computer science and computer information science. And that kind of started my progression and my journey in software engineering. I uh, got married, knew that long-term music wasn't really what I wanted to, to invest my whole future in. My dad had always encouraged me to, you know, pursue the music thing, but also add more things into your basket. Don't put them all in one. And so I had went to college for that, graduated. I became an intern at a very small business by the guy of Earl Johnson. It was called SPI Creative. And my now business partner was basically the manager and, and he helped run that. And we both just figured out that, hey, we're, we're doing a lot of work here. Why don't we just ask if we can buy this very small operation in an effort to honor him, right? We didn't want to just kind of quit and leave and go do our own thing because we always strive to do the right thing. And so we, we went to him, just said, hey, this is what we want to do. We want to grow this thing beyond what you're doing. Could you give us an opportunity to, quote unquote, buy it from you? In hindsight, we really didn't buy much. And... I don't even think we still have one client that, that we worked with that, that was on that book of business. But we grew it from there in 2012. Love my business partner, Bart. And our team that we've built over the years, we're now coming up over 100, which is pretty exciting. And we've just got a lot of growth plans in the future. And in fact, it's been a long run. And 
my business partner and I decided that I was going to, he was going to sell his interest and I'll be the sole uh, owner of Midwestern starting on July 1. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> nice. I guess we can intermingle tech and whatnot, but I, I want to go down the path of, tell us about the band you were in. What kind of music did you play? Anything we would have heard of? No, probably not. We were the unsung heroes of Christian worship. So we, we toured around, did a bunch of like camps for kids and all that type of stuff. And we had a blast doing that. We partnered with an organization uh, early on called Christ in Youth and had seen a lot of really good traction from that. And that bled over into a lot of other really cool and interesting opportunities. So it's called the Jordan Howerton Band. There's still a lot of music out there by us. Wouldn't trade those years of my life for anything. It was it was awesome. It was a lot of fun. I love those guys. They're my brothers, and I always will be. There's some overlap there, right, Robbie? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I used to be in a uh, like metal hardcore Christian band for a few years. So yeah, we never did 190 days of touring a year, but <laughs> we did you know a month or two here and there, and it's definitely fun and and love doing it. Yeah, man. What was the name of the band? It's called The Waking Hour. I don't think it's out anywhere for anyone to check out because it was kind of pre-streaming services and things. Was that a play off the witching hour? I don't actually really know where the name came from. It used to be called Acts of Brutality. And we thought that was like... <laughs> Very Christian. Too much. Like, you can't tell your grandma it's called Acts of Brutality. So, like, we wanted something more wholesome. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. You got some merch to share? Or? I don't know. I might have some merch left. My dad wears a lot of the... Uh, the old shirts we had. <laughs> That's so funny. Your dad too. My dad did too. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He only wears things that I have designed or been associated with pretty much, which is kind of hilarious, but it's cool. Nice. Yeah. We'll take the support. <laughs> also, Robbie, you started in having to do a MySpace page for your band, right? Wasn't that your first like MySpace customization for your band? Yeah. And after that, I started with PHP. So some overlap in that as well. It's pretty crazy, right? Like you uh, leverage the tools for what you love to do. And then you fall in love with the tool. Mm -hmm. It's a really interesting thing. You know, I remember the idea of telling a computer what to do was just baffling to me. It was like, I can just create my own anything and leverage it for good. Obviously, some people leverage it for bad. But there's just a lot of things you can do with with technology, and it's really cool to see what people come up with. Yeah, it's pretty cool that you can you know have one thing, a computer, and just sit there and make infinite stuff, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so many stuff that you never pick one stuff. Oh, that's just me right now. I'm like, I have a project list a hundred plus long, and I'm like, mm, tired. That's children. We all know that now. Yeah, which I guess is a good segue, kind of into a few other questions here. So. Along those lines, how do you decide which types of technologies to work with? Oh, man. I think there was never a moment that I had sat down with like a whiteboard or a chalkboard, depending on the decade, and was like, here's all these languages and technologies, and here's all the things that could be built, and then here's my methodical decision-making process. I don't know if I have like an instant where that occurred, but I think when it comes to the business and it comes to the technologies that we use, it was in some ways right place, right time. I think all of us have opportunities at different times to execute. Some 
have opportunities and squander them. Some have opportunities and status quo it, and then others have opportunities and they execute. And there's a lot of things that go into that execution, your team, your leadership, your ability to grind, right? I mean, we've all heard the buzzwords, hustle, grind, whatever you call it, grit. Mm -hmm. But I think it's just, it's the ability to execute on those opportunities. And at the end of the day, do the next right thing, right? Make a decision that's based on doing right by people and doing right by people, places, or things, and good things will start to happen. Yeah, definitely. Chuck and I, being owners of this business, find ourselves doing a ton of different things and like not being able to necessarily pick a certain technology or even a certain, maybe it's not even technology based. Like I do a lot of finance stuff. Like Chuck does a lot of client relations and things. Mm-hmm. We're at a different scale for sure. So we have well, to, yeah, yeah. We have our hands in a number of pots and also like client interest will drive certain things. And we'll look at that, what the opportunity is, what the client interest is, what's the problem we're trying to solve. And then, Hey, do we have the tools and the skill set to sort of go down that path? For sure. Yeah. But I think in your sense, it's like some of those things probably overlap. Like, oh, do these seem like interesting problems to be solving? How many of your clients are asking for this kind of thing? And then how you address that from like a skill set, interest, marketability, ideology. And maybe we're going way down the business part of it, but I can <laughs> see where there's some yeah kind of overlaps in those. Yeah. I think what's interesting, you know, you mentioned different scale. I've only not been in the coding seat for, I don't know, a little bit over a year. Hmm. Like I am a software engineer. Like I love coding. I wish I could do it more. The only time I code at this point is when I want to learn something new, not for anyone else other than me. Like Web3 is something I've really been getting into just because I think we're kind of on the beginning of some really cool, cool tech initiatives using Web3. Mm-hmm. But no, man, I like Robbie, I hear you. There's the finance side, right? Like I've been managing the budget for Midwestern for the last six years, forecasting whole nine yards, client relations to get you Chuck, right? Like dealing with client issues and all that, the stuff you have to do, you know, when, when you're at the helm. And so I think there's just a, there's a big melting pot of when you are running a business, you have to be able to be the right person for the job at any given moment. Right. And you have to have that ability to, to change um, your priorities, to meet the priorities of the people setting the priorities, whether that's your employees, whether it's your client or whether that's you and being able to put yourself, lower yourself into the seat, get in the foxhole shoulder to shoulder with your team and find a way to make it through is really what it's all about. And that's kind of what I was getting at with, you know, choosing to do the right next thing. When you base your decisions on what's right, it's a whole lot easier to go to sleep at night. Right. And so, right. And getting good rest is very important in the progression of your business. And sometimes the buck stops with you, right? Like you um, have a vision and you want to protect your team and you want to like, Oh, web three is a buzzword and all that kind of stuff. Is there a real realistic opportunity there? before I have my team kind of dive into that? Or is this a rug pull for the industry or something else? Like, or is it a little of both? Who knows? Yeah. And somebody's got to make those decisions and you're on the hook for all kinds of things if, you know, things were to fail. So I dig that. That's right. Have you ever read the book, um, Extreme Ownership? I haven't. And now you called me out on it. So it's really good. Recommend it. It's <laughs> it's by Jocko Willen and uh, Leif Babin, and you know they were Navy SEALs, and I've heard of them. Yes, they draw on their experience. Yep, they're legit dudes. And 
one of the things I remember that they said is, you know, when, when you embody extreme ownership, you need to be okay with accepting the success. But at the same time, if you're willing to accept the success of something, you have to be willing to accept the failure of something. And I think that's an interesting thing that we as business owners, we carry that weight with us all the time. The decisions that we make, the things that we do. Yeah, there's lots of high reward, but there's also, there's a long way to fall. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And yeah. having that, that ability to parse through both of those outcomes and weigh it heaven, like heavily for you and your team is a heavy burden to carry. And, and it's not a light task. So kudos to you guys. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I know we've definitely had some sleepless nights wondering like how to proceed with certain things and and make clients happy. And when people are employed and their livelihood is based on what you decide, that's definitely heavy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, I totally agree that not making the decision just in a a black box, like, you know, involve others and and do what's best for everyone is is always going to at least make you feel like you did the right thing. So even if you do fail, it's like, you know, you didn't <laughs> screw anyone over on purpose or anything, which is good. Yep. Yeah. So both Robbie and Princess Anna from Frozen 2 realize this. Do the next right thing. It's important. Hey, there you go. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you've seen that a hundred thousand times, but I have, Matt. And so. I have not seen that a hundred thousand times. Yeah. Frozen 2 is not, not very good. Frozen 1 was good. I disagree. I highly disagree. Kristoff mm, singing uh, that uh, Lost in the Woods will get stuck in your head for months. And it's excellent music. And you should recognize that as a musician yourself. Well, Rob always argues that Into the Unknown is better than Let It Go. And I will fight him. <laughs> like, Let It Go gets stuck in your head big time. <laughs> for context, Rob works for us. So this is not a great way to talk about your employees. Um, <laughs> like, tens of people will hear. I don't mean physical fight. I'm not going to abuse him. I'm just, Arguments. Yes, I will argue that it is a... Language, Robert. <laughs> language. Here's what it comes down to. And I'll just probably end this. Most things in life where you're trying to be better than something else and the, the impetus for that decision is to be better than something else usually falls short. So I guarantee you when they wrote Into the Unknown, they said this has to be better than Let It Go. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yep. You know, I mean, think about that brainstorming session with those writers. They, they had to have like felt the pressure of Let It Go and they had to come up with something that was better. And the first time around, they were just able to be freely creative, lower risk, not That's no right. risk because it's Disney. But like they were just like, what's the best we got? Oh, crap. How do we do better than that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I just like Lost in the Woods. So, you know, I do want to track back to another technology question because you were talking about how like you were in the seat a year ago and sometimes now. So for maybe I have two questions. Sometimes now you're doing it for both your own and pleasure and maybe to vet something new or whatever. But my first question will be, what was the last piece of code you wrote for the company that you were billing clients for? Yeah. So I believe my last production push had to do with a notification engine around when to send push notifications, text notifications, and email notifications based on different triggers in an iOS application. Mm, Okay. Mm. So built the API, obviously with a team. I wasn't the only developer on it, but helped build the API. It was a microservices, Nest, JS architecture, Mm. utilizing Kubernetes and blah, 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 all the buzzwords, right? That's right. (laughs) I'm just trying to drum up business for you right now. So, Oh, nice. (laughs) There was a lot of decision points in that, right? Like, 
When do you send a notification? How do you allow people to subscribe to notifications? They want certain notifications, but not all notifications. And, you know, recently I've been seeing something go around LinkedIn that was like the diagram chart that Slack uses for the notification engine. And I was like, yep, that's about right. Like, it just looks like a convoluted mess. Like if someone (laughs) wants this keyword to notify you, do this. If someone doesn't want notifications for this, don't do this. It's just a lot of decision points that, you know, as you run through that decision tree, those notifications have to fire all different ways to all different devices based on the device keys and whatnot. So, you know what, that is perfect into a, a quote that I read, I don't know, the last couple of weeks and where someone said, what makes you a senior engineer? It isn't that you're faster. It's that you've done it before. And you recognizing patterns like that to understand the correct architecture for launching successful software because you've done it before. Anyway, it just popped in my mind. Yep. And, you know, with that, I think that's good. I'm going to piggyback off that. We've got a win-learn mentality here at Midwestern and that not a win-lose. And so that really just adds to any industry that you're in, not just technology or programming. But when you get contextual experience you have the opportunity to make better decisions the next time. And now, does that give you a crutch to say, oh, we can fail here, we can quote unquote lose here and everything's going to be okay? That crutch can exist in that mentality. But if you've got great people on your team and you're fostering a great culture, those contextual experiences help further not only the tech that you're building, but also the business that you're building to learn from mistakes, to not have those same mistakes next time. So I'd completely agree with you on that statement. Yeah, definitely. We've talked about on some other episodes, stuff like that, that, you know, nothing like dropping all the tables and not having a backup to make you learn not to do that again. So uh, (laughs) it's definitely a learning experience. (laughs) Absolutely. Nothing like doing that, that also creates migrations into existence. (laughs) You know, yes, I guarantee you, whoever (laughs) built the migration and database scripting languages were like, I never want to have that experience again Yeah, because I almost died and had a heart attack. <laughs> I mean, there you go. It's very simple and it's probably going to sound like some pseudo business techie speak thing, but like failure creates innovation failure in some way, either the user tried to do something and had a miserable experience. So they created their own or pushed other people to create that or the person themselves had a massive failure and now they had to write their way out of it. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I want to circle back for a minute to your learnings on Web3. I think for me, the biggest issue with it so far is just that, like, for the common person, you've got to have, you know, MetaMask or all the different tools to, like, be able to log in and do things places. So I feel like I wanted to get your take on on how we get from kind of this being a, a niche type of thing that kind of developers are into to, like, making this a thing that everyone can use. Yeah, so I'm not so much into exploring Web3 from a quick pump and dump money making thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like I think when most people talk about Web3 and the experts in Web3, most of them, there's a lot of people out there that are experts in Web3 that are using it to do some really cool stuff, right? But most of them that you see on Twitter and all this, they got into Board Ape Yacht Club early, they've got into some of these early projects that they just made crazy amounts of return on NFTs, which is great. Super happy for them. Right. But the reality is, is that's a very small percentage of people in the game, you know, and some people may want to talk a big game about how much money they're making. That's awesome. 
people are making the same amounts in other investment strategies. But for me, the Web3 tech itself that is the most interesting are the, are the problems that it can solve, right? Not necessarily from an investment perspective, but just everyday problems that exist in humanity, right? That it can not necessarily solve it, but it can give us the next step to solving some of these really interesting issues. I'll give one example. Documents, right? Certified documents along the lines of titles for property, titles for vehicles, all that type of stuff, right? I don't know if you've ever had to pay personal property tax or go to a courthouse and do all this stuff. And It's literally one of the most cumbersome things you've ever had to experience in your entire life, right? But at the time that filing cabinets and manila envelopes and all these different things came out and even paper, right? You would think, okay, that's new technology for people at some point in that progression. That was new technology that was being leveraged to do something new to help innovate a certain area of responsibility in our existence on this earth. So Web3 for me is, okay, there's a new ledger system, right? There's a new way to keep track of things that are on chain, who was responsible, who owned what, right? There's all different types of unique tools that can solve these problems that in some ways could be used in that instance. Do I think that Web3 as it is today could solve that and all the tools with Web3 could solve that? No. But the baseline foundation and, and the, the, the technology that exists could, if the tooling got better, mm-hmm. solve something like that. Yeah. Boom. Nailed it on that. I believe that too. And I think that that's where really where we are best placed to help that movement. Right. And obviously there's all this marketing and press on a different side, which is interesting. And you can have this pool towards, wow, I'd like some of that FOMO, mm-hmm. but conversely where our skill sets are, our knowledge is, is that there's a lot of potential in the infrastructure and what, what could we do to like contribute and be part of that. And yeah, I hadn't really thought about it in being like the leap in the same way that like you trust John Smith down the road. And he said, yeah, they've had this house 10 years and they got the roof done five years in. Trust me, I'm John. I'm your neighbor. And then we had to move into documentation. Why are we documenting? Because we're putting on a paper and a file camera. You don't trust me. You're giving it to the government. Well, and now we're like talking about another leap in many ways, the same way, like we put our credit cards on our phones and stuff like that. It's not like yep. a massive leap into that. Um, you have a very more, a much more responsible example of a way you could do that than I've said on this podcast before, where I was talking about like, let's say you had a wine membership. Now it's an email and a list and becomes commoditized within this whole into web three and even an NFT, not as a piece of art, but an NFT is like, it's my membership. And then when I decide I don't want your wine club anymore, I am able to resell it. And then you, every time it's resold, can take a percentage of that. That's all like, I think, positive, mm-hmm. you know, like positive for those businesses and the individuals versus art. And I'm not opposed to art, but, yeah, you know, I'm an old man. Get off my lawn sometimes. So <laughs> for sure. And what I would say to those types of things, too, is that there's so many projects out there that are trying to do things like that. Right. I think a key differentiator for me that I think I find intriguing, right? So there's this Lynx Golf DAO, right? And, okay, I have a membership to this thing. Where do I play golf, right? Like, they, it's like they sell these things as a way to, like, 
do any other like VC pitch where there's really nothing behind it other than just here's an idea and a vision for what this NFT and membership would look like. Now invest in it and trade these NFTs until I have enough money to do something with it. I can't tell whether Robbie shared with you what we were going to discuss or you're trolling me right now or I don't know. <laughs> what do you mean? We'll get there. I'm sorry. And I interrupted you, but I'll let him finish first. No. So for me, it's like, I think businesses that have membership already, right? They have the infrastructure in place to support the product, whether or not they're profitable yet, I don't think is is necessarily the big key differentiator there. I think it's more of, do they have the infrastructure to provide a membership, mm -hmm. right? Do they have an avenue in which membership can be executed? And more so than just a Discord, right? Or some sort of chat engine or text group or something like that. I mean, like legit membership that allows them to receive the benefit from holding it. And I think there's too many projects out there that, you know, they create these memberships and then they've got a quote unquote roadmap and they haven't achieved it yet. And all of a sudden the project is rugged and it's over. Yeah. So those are just my two cents getting into Web3 to be careful. Not that I've been rugged before. <laughs> I've absolutely <laughs> been rugged before. That's my two cents. Did you also take investment advice from Robbie? <laughs> <laughs> no, I got roped into some stuff that was honestly just a nightmare. And I've been a part of projects that were good. And I've been a part of projects that were bad. And I think that's why I've got a healthy perspective now. So, yeah, I know which road to take and which one not to. Yeah. Yeah. Chuck likes to give me a hard time. But exactly. The only thing that he bought was Shiba Inu, which, yes, it has gone down because you bought it at like the most expensive price. When you convinced me to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> but the community is like still behind it. There's like tons and tons of people still in I it. I still have it. It is what it is. And I think you're well-intentioned, so let me say that here, even though, you know, I make a lot of jokes <laughs> on this podcast, I'm not a terrible human all the time. You're well-intentioned, you share things you're interested in, and you always say, probably shouldn't follow my advice, though. So, there you go. And other friends in the same that are involved in some, some things, and they've done well, or whatever else. I have a friend that got uh, into an NFT with, uh, and got a Damien Hurst NFT, and it is awesome. I mean... I studied a lot of art and art history and all that kind of stuff. And he's displaying the NFT in his kitchen and it's really cool. And you can exchange that for a physical one if you really didn't believe in it at any point too. So I think that like that kind of stuff, it's kind of a niche, but it's a neat opportunity and it's very opinion space there too. So it's like, Oh, if you don't like that art, that's how art is. Move on. It's not for you. Yeah. So you're talking about golf. I understand your favorite sport is baseball. So tell us about that. My favorite sport is baseball. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. <laughs> you clearly haven't listened to this podcast before, but that's okay. <laughs> so now there's like two jokes I've made there. Oh, sorry. I, uh, yeah, I know you love golf. Uh, I think we've talked about it a couple of different times. Mm -hmm. So where did your interest in golf come from? Man, I played golf at an early age, not in a good way. Like I was never like great. I never played like on a team or anything like that, but I did take lessons one summer. It was cool, but it put it up. Wasn't for me. Right. And then probably a year and a half ago, I started to pick up golf again and I fell in love with it. And I think for me personally, it was this avenue in which I could be completely and 100% responsible for the input and the output as, and I don't think it's, it's a coincidence that me not programming anymore kind of lines up with my golf addiction, right? And so, like, 
getting out of this like seat where you are the sole responsible person for a line of code and the success of that code running, right? I needed those like dopamine hits or I needed those that immediate feedback that said, oh, that's great. Good job, Matt. Keep going. Or I needed the inverse of that, which is like, that was a terrible shot. Do better next time, <laughs> right? <laughs> so See, and that's where I always get caught up. Yeah. But I, I think it created this like this need to watch videos and fix my swing and like learn and go out and practice and hit balls and things like that. So it's been good for me in this season of life. I also have a lot of friends that play. So we've got some competition. I'm a very competitive person. I love being outside. I love exercising. It just kind of checks all the boxes for this point in my life. I actually am not sure. Robbie, do you golf? No, I might do my first round next month. If I do, I'll let you know how it goes. You should. Yeah. And that is the problem I've had. And maybe it is about the season of life. Kind of like what you said is I had a period of life where there are certain things that I enjoyed, were good at and full of a half dozen hobbies or so. And that's it. Like, oh, I don't want another one. I'm not good at this. Oh, okay. I can draw it, drive the ball far. Can't really put it in any direction. And I have to do this 18 times as Robin Williams would have said. <laughs> no. And I hate this and it's expensive. So whatever. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe like the input output and having some control and then having the ability to sort of like, I'm not good, but I could be, I can get the skill and enjoy that maybe to a degree. So. Right. What's cool about golf too, is that the only person you're really playing is yourself, right? Like it's a very mentally challenging game because again, I don't know how much you know about it. I'm going to talk about it real quick. There is essentially 72 strokes to hit an even par on most golf courses, okay? I think there's a stat that's like less than 1%. That could be a little aggressive. Let's go with five. Less than 5% of golfers get under 100, right? So when you think about that, like bogey golf, which is one stroke over par for every hole, will put you around 90, right? Double bogey golf will put you over 100, Hmm. So like no matter what course you play, no matter what you do, there's a mixture of par fours, par threes, par fives, and you can always kind of keep a running tally of what your lowest score is. And you're always trying to get a lower and lower score. And it's, it's a lot like the stock market, right? It'll ping pong. Hmm. But, you know, you can get that average score and you keep getting it lower and lower and lower and you keep getting that dopamine hit and that payoff, that carrot that keeps you going. All right. I'm going to write that down. You promise we'll all three get together. And we're going to play and I'm going to be full of 18 <laughs> dopamine hits minimum. Let's do it. All right. <laughs> yeah. Because there's always one shot that you make that keeps you coming back. Right. You're like, oh, my gosh, I hit that like three feet from the pin and I got a birdie or something like that. Right. That's like my whole career. <laughs> sort of like flailing, flailing, flailing. Oh, my gosh. I built something amazing. Yeah. Flailing, flailing, flailing. <laughs> <laughs> you got it, man. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't want to like totally troll you on that, but I had to make some jokes and I know it's something you're really interested in. So I figured, you know, worth bringing up. Yep. The lowest I've ever shot is 87. So there you go. Nice. Not great. Not bad, but 87. Nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah. That's not bad. Yep. So we mentioned earlier that you not only have a successful agency, but you're a multiple business owner. Not everybody knows that we are actually also that, but let's talk about you first. Yeah. Talk about your other businesses, how those came to be, or how you decided to get into that. How many tires have you flipped? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So I used to be really heavy into CrossFit 
And at that time, my wife had kind of grown up not only in her family, but she was really close with another family. And the head of the household was really into CrossFit and that other family she was closely connected to. And he kind of got me into CrossFit. I went to a CrossFit competition, watched him one time. And I was like, you know what? I can do this. Like, I'm going to go do it. So went to a gym, got into CrossFit. He was into CrossFit. My business partner, Bart, I got him to come with me. Funny story, real quick. His first day, I had been going for like, I think probably three months at that point. And his first day, he just went for it, man. I mean, like all out went for it. And at the end of the workout, he felt like he was going to puke. And he would, it looked like he was literally getting ready to pass out. He was sitting down back up against the, you know, one of those box jumps. And the gym owner came over and was like, dude, you're going to puke. So he brought a trash can over. <laughs> and he, the trash can was on his left side. Bart looked at the trash can and then immediately turned right and puked all over his gym floor. <laughs> it's, like, it, it's so funny. And it's been infamous that Bart did that. But long story short, we uh, got into kind of CrossFit apparel and then that led us into CrossFit gyms. And so we opened our first gym, gosh, I think in 2017. And we now have three gyms, one in Northwest Arkansas, one in Joplin, one in Carthage, and looking to add more. Nice. It should be noted that those are all in which state? Uh, Missouri, Arkansas, and Missouri. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. And then we also have a coffee shop I have with another business partner. With my traveling with the Jordan Howerton Band, we went to coffee shops all the time. Joplin didn't really have a really good in my mind at the time coffee shop that was just a gathering place where people could come and leave better than they came and we wanted to do that and so we took an old gas station garage tire shop completely renovated the whole thing just myself and austin daniel and we gutted it i mean it was not in any good condition whatsoever and now it's a beautiful really cool industrious coffee shop and I think it rivals from a taste perspective. Obviously, every coffee shop has its niche and we support all coffee shops. But I constantly am saying, oh, it's not zinc. It's not zinc. And we have people telling us that all the time, too. So the name of the coffee shop is Zinc Coffee. Let's go on a coffee tour. (laughs) (laughs) I have some favorites here, some favorites in D.C. and then international favorites. Let's, Yeah. Robbie, I'm going to have to take off for a couple months. (laughs) What's your drink of choice? Well, I like espresso as a way of tasting it like tasting the roast and that kind of thing i never have a drink it's always black coffee in some form mm. okay Gross. <laughs> i don't know i like cortados sometimes lattes i do like cortado. i don't not uh, i guess that's true i'm a liar i don't not like those ever so when i'm traveling i like to get a cappuccino in the morning i mean i'm not i'm cultured I don't have it after 11, but yeah, you learned that in Italy. You can't get it after noon, right? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and then, yeah, Cortado when I was in Spain or like just sometimes later in the day, it's kind of nice. But in general, because I want to taste kind of what they have going on, what's the roast, what's the bean and all that stuff. Yeah. Just get an espresso. For sure. Yeah. Something, the coffee shop journey for me was that, you know, the best espressos are dialed in every day. Mm. I didn't realize that like, the temperature can change the flavor, the humidity can change the flavor. And so having a barista that's able to dial in the espresso every day makes a huge difference in the outcome of the shot. So, 
yeah, people that are invested, not just there. Yep. I mean, I think that goes across industries. Mm-hmm. Sort of like you were saying. You Got to dial in your YAML files, Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Robbie knows, and maybe you don't know, or I don't know, maybe you do. I say it too much. Is yeah, my dream is just to be a really good YAML developer. Nice. Good for you. My experience with YAML. Playing around with Kubernetes. Yeah, with Kubernetes. And, you know, it had to do with that project, honestly, that, you know, I last touched. So frustrating. YAML is very frustrating at times. Until you get a plugin on your IDE or whatever you use for coding that can just fix all of your formatting issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't count the number of times that I've, like, pushed to GitHub, GitHub Actions, and it's like, your YAML file is like not correct and i have to do it again and it's like it's still not correct <laughs> and i'm like well don't let me push it then or something come on yep <laughs> smarter ide that's really this it's about your settings and you're not using it often enough so you don't have the settings and all of that yeah computers are smarter than me i realize that. that's right put add it to your sniffing you know yeah so uh what okay we're talking tech right what do you guys do what, what's your like sniffing strategy uh and like GitHub action strategy and CSCD pipeline strategy. Like what, what do you set up for local catches? What do you set up for pipeline catches? All that type of stuff. Mm. So I tend to not do a ton of like pre-commit hooks or any of that kind of stuff because I like to just run linting. Like I'll run ESLint, Ember has like template linting and then prettier formatting on all that. And that's part of like a CI check for run on the lint versus like, not allowing you to push it all if the lint doesn't pass. Because I think that's really annoying if I want to just push something up real quick and like fix it later. Mm-hmm. So I do it all CI side, nothing local. Yeah, because even if Husky's on a project, I find myself throwing no verify flags on all the time. I'm like, oh, okay, you have mm-hmm. this. Yeah, I can get past that because I want to be able to like commit code every day and have in progress, not ready for prime time draft stuff anyway. So right. I agree. I prefer it on the CI side. Also, we kind of tend to find that like, which makes sense. I used to be on the corporate side, engineering manager, director, whatever else. And then like having people come in who didn't always live there. And I would, you had to protect your product to a degree. So you set some guardrails there and, you know, try to have those layers. So now I'm on the other side of that and that's great. I understand that I'm empathetic to it. But on the other hand, I want to have in progress work. And then on our open source work, I kind of want to like lower the barrier to entry because we have all of this when we're working with clients, when we're in the open source community, you just want to be friendlier. And so like let GitHub or let Circle or Travis or whatever, talk back to you a little bit, Mm -hmm. let you know what's going on and then let you still contribute without and get things off your computer essentially. For sure. Yeah. We went the early on, obviously when all these tools come out, all these like ideas come out, right? Like you always want to just jump to them and try them out and then reality hits right there's like this dogmatic approach that can exist but then you start to realize real life still exists we need to find something that works well for our workflows and all that stuff so completely agree with what you guys have set up all those pre-commit hooks can be pretty what's the word they can be a lot of handcuffs yeah to you and your progress and visibility and transparency into what you're doing so well yeah i'm gonna guess you would agree that like a work-life balance makes happy, healthy people, right? Mm-hmm. And if you have people working on a project and it's 4.30 and they're trying to tidy up and just get their code pushed so that it's protected, it's off my machine, and people can take a look if they want, but it's not really a big deal, 
and then they run into these barriers and then you're like, well, okay, let me fix that thing. Oh, now there's a, oh, now it's six o'clock. Okay. Well, right. That's great for some people, but it's not ideal for again, a happy, healthy workforce of people that want to contribute. And even if it was open source, can you imagine? Oh, I'm working on this thing. I thought, oh, I can spend an hour and contribute to your project. Maybe I can't get it merged. Mm-hmm. But can I at least like get my idea out? You know, whiskey works, by the way. Yeah. It's also a problem because if someone else pushed with no verify or there's like a thing that like a, a dependency of a dependency updates and it has like a type error and you're doing really strict type checking that checks that way all the way down. Like there's an error that you didn't introduce that suddenly you have to fix to be able to push at all. So I I just don't agree with that setup. Yep. It's interesting. So this is going to lead us into another question I have is like testing strategies, (laughs) right? Like Mm. there's been projects we've been a part of that are like, we want a hundred percent test coverage. Yeah. And then there's projects that are like, we don't want any test coverage. And then there's projects (laughs) that are like, we want 50, right? There's so many opinions around the topic. So what's y'all's opinion? It's an arbitrary metric, so it depends on context. It's the same as velocity, right? Oh, we want every developer to have 15 points velocity every single sprint. Well, guess what? You can manipulate that if you know it going in. So mm-hmm. velocity is a metric to help your team plan. That's it. And everybody's on the hook for the total committed work. It doesn't inform business people how the team's doing. And I think that test coverage is very much the same way, is that you can game it if you kind of had to, if it's 100% coverage, guess what? You're stifling some feature work, user value. And if that's what you value more, because that's a metric you've set in your organization, okay, but just don't think that that guarantees everything's fine because yeah. it doesn't. Yeah, you could have a thing that clicks everything, fills in everything, does all the stuff, and then just assert true. Yeah. Like you didn't test anything, but you get 100% coverage because you interacted with everything. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it, it is kind of silly. <laughs> so zero and 100% are both scary to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally. And there's there's like this element too, like anytime you're mocking data, you're what? You're mocking data. <laughs> like to me, I think obviously there's ways to mock data in a healthy, responsible way. But to your point, if you're just trying to get 100% test coverage, there's unhealthy ways to mock data that just check the box. Yeah. We have, um, have you done anything with consumer-driven contract testing? I don't know what you're saying. Those are a lot of words. (laughs) Nobody's put those together for me. Yeah, so, you know, and I'm only drawing back to kind of the last real project that I was devving on. But in a microservices architecture, a lot of the problems with the microservice is that not everyone knows how people are utilizing that microservice. No true integration testing, right? Okay. Yeah. And then there, you know, integration testing with EDE, right? People are like, this mm-hmm. is integration testing, but in the microservice architecture, it's like, no, you're really only testing the utilization that you know of mm. and you can get that coverage. But so the consumer driven contract testing is more using a tool like Postman or some of those tools where you can create these automated workflows tied into, you know, CICD pipelines. And you're essentially saying, if you are a consumer of this API, right? You need to write tests. Obviously, we're talking about a more protected microservice environment, not every third party, you know. A simulated sandbox, if you will. You got it. You write your own tests that it it goes through the usage of the microservice, and then it will show green or false, 
right? And then so you, when you're developing on that microservice, you can have full visibility into if you're breaking something that a consumer of that microservice is using. We're going to have to have you back because <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts around that. It's a really interesting way to go about testing that honestly, in my opinion, bolsters it up even larger than unit testing or feature testing, just because you're actually testing the utilization of the consumer, not the code itself. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I agree 100%. I think there are a lot of entryways into that. And I think there's some interesting people you could discuss that with. TBD. Yeah. Just to be clear, I think Netflix was one of the the big uh, proponents in leading out on CDC testing. Did you do any of that stuff there, Robbie? No, I was there to keep the Ember app alive while they killed all of the Ember and converted to React. So oh. I was not involved with conversations like that. Oh, well. Anyway. Cool. Yeah. Well, that was a fun little, fun little whatnot, you know? Yeah. We're about at the end here. We usually keep these to about an hour. So with the last minute here, is there anything you would like to plug or any other projects you're working on or causes you care about things we didn't cover? No, I just think um, at Midwestern, our mission is to serve each other and serve our client. And just to anyone out there doing anything in society, putting other people's needs above your own will always produce a great positive outcome so serve everyone you work with serve the people you work for and good things will happen nice good advice thanks everybody for listening if you liked it please subscribe and we will catch you next time thanks for listening to whiskey web and whatnot this podcast is brought to you by Shipshape and produced by podcast royale If you like this episode, consider sharing it with a friend or two and leave us a rating, maybe a review, as long as it's good. You can subscribe to future episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more info about ShipShape and this show, check out our website at shipshape.io.